Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Cheryl West Luong. She is part of a multicultural family, and she has a chronic illness, but she also works in the DEI space. So that's just a few things about Cheryl. So I'm excited to hear more about her life and what she's got to share. So Cheryl, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thanks for the invitation, Sarah. I'm glad to be here and glad to spend some time with you today. Well, I will start with saying that I am in Texas. I'm a native Texan. Hopefully, I don't have too much of an accent. I worked hard on kind of honing that out. However, I I can lay it on pretty thick sometimes. So we'll see what your listeners actually think of my accent as we go. I'm from the Dallas area originally. Grew up in a suburb just north of Dallas. So when people talk about being from Dallas, but they're really in a suburb an hour away, I really do claim Dallas as home. Uh, originally, I'm now in Central Texas, um, Waco, which is 90 miles north of Austin, 90 miles south of Dallas, which is pretty convenient for the weekends. You can get to what you need to, but it's not, well, it used to not be quite as hectic. We've grown quite a bit since we moved here, but it's it's a great place to kind of raise a family and, and it's where um, I've had both of my sons. So that's where I am now. Uh, growing up in Dallas gives you an opportunity to be exposed to quite a bit in terms of just diversity. But it, you also have the opportunity to shelter just like anyone else. And so I think some of my upbringing, when I look back on it, was both very sheltered early on from, you know, other types of people, and yet also incredibly um, just blessed to see more diversity than I could have ever understood at the time how unique it was of an experience because of how many people I've since met just did not grow up running into people who from Cameroon or from Ghana or from Pakistan, you know, just in their classes at school. And so I, I say that to say that, you know, my parents weren't sure at times about what it meant to be in a diverse space. And that's, I think, something that a lot of our generation have experienced is just what does that mean? What does it mean when you're where you grew up, where they grew up. My grandparents lived a couple blocks away on both sets in each direction. And so when they don't leave far from home and you watch where you grew up diversify very quickly, there's some fear that can often be attached because things change. So I think there was some desire to make sure that we were safe and that we were getting a good education and all of these things were happening. And so Early on, I think my understanding of living in a diverse world was that there were a lot of unknowns and unknowns meant things to be afraid of. And then as I grew a little bit just in my own development, 
and more exposure, particularly in the high school that I ended up going to, um, I just kind of moved from a place of fear to a place of curiosity and made friends that really changed my life in many ways. And so and that kind of began my journey into what now we call DEI. I never would have known that was what my interest was at the time or where I was going. So how did you form your career to now be in a DEI space? I ask myself that question often, actually. Probably the entry point that I reference the most is 9-11. I will date myself very specifically, but I can't help it, in that 9-11 occurred my first week of college. So as a college student, you can remember what it was like when you're still really trying to figure things out, even though you've told everyone your plans and all the things that you knew you were going to do. You're going to major in this and you're going to go into that. Most of us still deep down inside, if we were honest, weren't really that sure. And for me, going into community college truly not knowing what I was going to do. I just watched the entire world shift. And I was working um, back at my old high school. I was a speech um, and debate nerd, and I was working as a judge and a coach um, hired back in my high school. And most of the students that I was working with were Pakistani and Muslim. And the school that I was in for community college was extremely diverse. And I can just remember going to school. And really for the first week, at least, we went to class. We went to the building, but we didn't even get into the classrooms because they were just we would just kind of sit around the halls and watch the TVs. or We'd watch TV in class. We just didn't do anything. And the tensions just kept growing between uh, the Muslim slash Indian Pakistani population, because they weren't all Muslim, but there was a conservative population that really just looked at anyone who looked brown and started to get go from being aloof to just really vitriol was occurring. And just watching that occur and thinking there has to be a way for people to know want some religious education that a Sikh is a Sikh, as we were seeing some violence happening like in gas stations. Um, if you remember anything that happened then, um, the people wearing um, religious garb that were being attacked and it, just terrible things that were happening. And I remember specifically walking out in the parking lot and there was a protest and it was very much people of color on one side and white people on the other. And it was like a go back to your country and like, you know, peace and we belong here and we love America thing happening and thinking we have to learn how to talk. And this is terrible and awful and I'm so embarrassed. So that was kind of the beginning of that. The second thing that was happening in my life at the time was that I had just started dating a Cambodian. Um, and so 
who was also, if you know anything about Southeast Asians, or they're darker Asians. And so I had a lot of fear during that time personally about what that looked like. And I wasn't just dating a Cambodian, but I was also serving in a Cambodian uh, congregation. So it was a church. So I was working with Cambodian students. And so I was very aware of what they were facing in their schools. And so um, my cultural lens had just been flipped to where I was thinking constantly about the Pakistani students that I had in my job and the Cambodian students that I had in my weekends. And then the people I was seeing at school and suddenly the lens that I'd worn my whole life wasn't the lens that I was wearing most of the time. And so I just, um, and growing up in a conservative Christian background, I was really put in this place of saying, if this is what this faith is calling for, I don't know if this is the one that I want to keep and having to really work through what does this even mean with this like kind of Christian nationalism that was rising. And so I got very, um, started to get very clear on both my beliefs, but also my desire to see better dialogue and to see better relationships. Um, and really just to get to know specifically the students that I had that were Muslim and to be um, a person that they could count on and trust when they were afraid, which happened a lot. Yeah. So when you started switching this lens and, you know, aiming for better dialogue and relationships, growing up with a conservative Christian background, what was your family response to that? I'm not sure that they were entirely aware of what was happening. We just, we don't really talk a lot about things. And so whatever response they had, it wasn't spoken. Um, as far as my husband goes, now husband, I married him. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, I think he was always somewhat of a token. So he was an exception to the rule. I was very afraid to come home and say, this is who I'm dating. And then they were really shocked that that was my response. But it was just based on the things that had happened in the past. Um, but I think it was, well, he's brilliant. He's good looking and he's well-spoken and he doesn't have an accent. And like he checked all these boxes. So it, it sort of shaped the narrative in that way. And then I think also we were all just so upside down with what was happening in the world that it was hard to really focus in on. I don't think they really understood what I was deconstructing and I wasn't necessarily verbalizing it either. And so then what has it been like starting a family with your husband? Well, I will say that we didn't have kids for the first. So we dated for five years before we got married. And a lot of that has to do with how young um, we were when we met. And a lot of that also has to do with what it means to be in a cross-cultural relationship because it is a little bit more complicated. And I had a lot of, well, I'm a commitment phobe, so there's that. But also just this real need to unpack a lot of things first. And then we didn't have kids for the first seven years. So we were together for 12 years first. So then having a child 
definitely brought up a lot of things that I thought I'd kind of settled in my mind or I thought that would necessarily be as difficult as they were. And some of them come around really just identity issues. So for instance, um, I would have dreams about having a white baby because I think that's just sort of what had been in my mind maybe growing up. I don't know. And I would feel really, really guilty about it. It was just, I think, what was maybe so deeply ingrained. And then um, we would um, think about names as well. And wanting to, we weren't, neither one of us were really into family names. That wasn't a problem, but just trying to think of how we were going to come about naming and names are really important to both of us. And so um, my son actually has a Hebrew first name um, because I was in seminary at the time and taking Hebrew. And so we had a Hebrew first name and his middle name is Cambodian and was really meaningful. Um, and so my parents use his first name and his parents use his middle name, which works out really well. But also, um, you know, when he was born, he was looked so Asian. And I think that was um, kind of hard at first, not in a sense of like connecting, but I realized that I didn't know a lot of in terms of like what a rash would look like or his hair was a little different or things that I just did not realize would come into play in a very literal physical way. I'd only thought about the developmental social things that I had been trained to think about that I'd been doing, you know, in my career that I hadn't actually thought that there would be, that he would somehow take more features of one or the other. I kind of just thought of this like perfect blended mix and that wasn't, that, you know, DNA doesn't work this way, but I didn't do that well in science in school. So yeah, there were things that I had to figure out. Um, and then trying to deal with, you know, daycare and school and you know, things like trying to pick up your kid and they don't think it's your kid. Or um, I got a lot of questions about where did I get him um, when he was little, which is a very, it, it's something that it shows our lens of adoption is very, I'm trying to think of a word that is appropriate to use, but we have a broken idea of adoption that has more to do with purchasing. And so people seem to think that I had found this beautiful baby from a country and there was interest in where I had found him. Um, and he is, I mean, he's gorgeous, but I had not purchased him. I had not taken him from a country that he had come from my womb. So that those things were a little bit difficult. Um, and then I had a second child that I was very much prepared for the same thing. And then he came out looking like me. <laughs> and I just was like, I don't know. I can't, I can't win on this one. I don't even know what to think about it. Um, but realizing now, as we raise these two boys who look very different from each other and helping them understand that they are brothers and that they are ethnically 
the same and that they both claim the same heritages and that they have the rights to call themselves the same thing um, is really important um, and complicated. Yeah, definitely sounds like it would be complicated. So how have you integrated the heritage of your family, of your husband's family within your multicultural family unit? Well, I'll give you one example. Uh, this past week was Easter. And we do go to church together. Um, but the 13th through the 15th is Cambodian New Year's. And it was also fell within Easter, um, Easter the 17th. And so their Easter outfits were actually traditional Cambodian wear. Um, so they wore that to church on Sunday uh, because, first of all, they were um, very bright and it fit. Um, and we were able to talk to them about New Year's and like new beginnings in two ways. And so that was kind of a fun thing. You know, food-wise is really important, learning to eat all kinds of food. Um, for me, and this is a whole nother conversation, but um, I'm registered with the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, which is only one piece of my family history. Um, but this year, um, we've begun the process of getting them registered with the tribe, and they will have um, certain privileges and things with the tribe um, and so teaching them about that as well. And so I had a really interesting conversation with my oldest son during the Olympics and he was watching, you know, it was in China and he was asking some questions and it dawned on me that, um, I wasn't sure if he knew, and this is me having really a complete parenting fail. Um, I'll just admit this, but it dawned on me that. I wasn't sure if he realized that one of his great-grandparents um, is Chinese, um, deceased, but Chinese. And so he was really into the Olympics. And I said, hey, buddy, we're watching the opening ceremonies. And he was, he's very mathematical. And so he, he was literally writing down on a piece of paper. He's eight. He was writing down on a piece of paper the stats for each country. He was trying to see, like, which countries were bigger and which countries were smaller. And so... As he's really into countries, he's really into um, culture. And so I said, hey, buddy, did you know that one of your great grandparents is actually from China? And he said, what? I was like, oh, no, maybe I shouldn't have gone there. Uh, that's probably your dad's conversation anyway. And he said, and he starts trying to count on his fingers. because, And I know he's doing the math. I know he's splitting himself. But he's like, so I'm... And he's trying to figure out what percentage, you know, Chinese. But then he, I, I realized what happens is he looks at me and realizes he has this side. And so the fractions are getting really difficult. And I just said, no, 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 buddy. You're not a percentage of a person. You're a whole person. You are all the heritages and cultures put together and you make one story. And that's the way that we like to look at it. That's the way I teach my students. That's really what it is, is that he has the right to all those stories. Those are all his stories. And he doesn't have to be a person who walks in a room and says, well, I'm half this and half that. 
well, but actually a quarter and then a quarter and then a this and then a this and then a this because people say, well, where are you from? Where are you from from? What are you? He doesn't have to entertain those questions, but that he can tell his story however he chooses to or not, depending on the situation. And then his brother will get to do the same thing, even though the questions will be different because of how he presents. Um, he gets to tell his story in his own ways. And have you had the chance to take your kids to Cambodia or outside of Texas? Um, no. Uh, <laughs> my husband has not gone to Cambodia himself. He was actually born in a refugee camp um, after the killing fields and has not chosen to go back yet. And so that will be something that he will have to decide that he's ready to do. And then as far as out of the state my oldest has been. He doesn't remember, and he's very angry about this. He really wants to travel. And then my youngest, no. I mean, his whole life that he remembers is in COVID. So we really haven't gotten to do anything. And if you know much about Texas and we're in the middle of it, you can't just drive. I mean, it would take us many hours to get out of the state. Uh, so, and it's very expensive to fly right now. So, especially with, you know, a family of four, the goal is to get them out soon. Uh, but yeah, not yet. That's understandable. I specifically asked since you said your oldest was so kind of into the opening ceremony of the Olympics. And I figured he's going to grow up wanting to travel he is lobbying to go to new york city right now that is i think he wants to go to china he's been talking about china for a while even before he knew that um and he says because of the food which man i guess that's logical and then when we said that would be a really big trip buddy um he then moved to new york city and we told him that that was a probably good second choice and so we've talked about doing a trip maybe when he turns like 10 or 12 and is really ready to walk the city and take in the city. Because it's a, it's a big deal to take in New York City and, and make it a special trip for him. Definitely. Now you've mentioned a little bit um, about studying divinity. So do you want to talk a little bit about your schooling and the work that you're doing now? Yes, my schooling ties in more than you might think, actually. So my concentration is in world Christianity. And my chair, uh, his name is Michael Stroop, Dr. Mike Stroop, um, just an incredible scholar, an amazing man. And our concentration in world Christianity is really on the global south and everything but Western Christianity. And so the idea really is to decentralize the understanding of the narratives that most of us have grown up with, which is of mostly German theologians and then some American theologians and British theologians and get us into what is actually the majority of Christians in the world, which are in South Korea and Brazil and south of the equator. 
and to understand who who they are and what they practice and and to really work on some of that ethnocentric viewpoint and so that really just played right into what my interests were anyway and so that was also really important as kind of in the last 10 years i think christian nationalism has has really taken over was just this reminder of really how small that group is in comparison to the global um you know, movement of Christianity. And so when people will say, well, Christians this, Christians that, I would remind them like, which ones, um, who, um, maybe you're talking about evangelicals of the last 20 years, but that's historically not the arc. Um, and not to defend them at all, or to say that it's not a significant thing, but only because it's not fair to lump in people who are here in the United States even who are not in line with what was happening in our country and and particularly those who are in black churches who are doing social justice work or who were in immigrant churches who were doing totally different things than what we were seeing um, elsewhere and so that's one of the things that i'm really passionate about is trying to decentralize narratives and to make sure that narratives are complicated which can frustrate people sometimes, but it is important that we remember that nothing is a monolith because it's really easy to then lose sight of the individuals who we then can very easily dehumanize and demonize because of a label that they have, because of our idea of what comes behind that label. And so what do you do in your day-to-day job? So I work in a multicultural affairs office uh, on a university campus, which for me, that means that I do programming and support services for students who identify, um, really, it's anybody on campus. It's not just students who identify with minoritized identities, but often mid students who are coming in um, not in the majority and provide things like our cultural heritage months. So I help put on say our black history month, our women's history month, our Latinx and Asian Pacific heritage month planning, um, just to make sure that there's opportunity to celebrate cultures that might not be in the mainstream of the traditional longstanding events that occur when you have a university that was founded in the 1800s, you have to kind of reinvent some of your oldest traditions. And so my office helps. And when I say, you know, some of these things are now 30 years old, 40 years old, but you have to help kind of stand against traditions that are 100 years old. And so I get to do that. I work with an interfaith student group called Better Together. Um, I also get to do um, some really great stuff with students who are in leadership with um, some coalitions and plan around really just making sure that people are get a voice on campus and then respond to events in the in the world so when things happen as they do current events then we 
post, whether it's um, panel discussion or some sort of, I I don't really like town halls, but we'll do just sort of discussion groups or anything that we can do to make sure that students have a space, talk through the things that are going on. And do you find that students will partake in things or learn about different cultures outside of where they identify? I find that students are often hesitant at first because they aren't sure where the boundaries are and if it's okay. And so they need permission to do that. They need to know that it's okay, that they're not offending anyone, what are kind of the parameters around that. And so the invitation has to be pretty clear. And then usually when when those things are, then yes, that's easier. We do find that students who are already in some minoritized identity are more likely to learn about another minoritized identity. And that is a little bit of a struggle then for those who don't really know what it feels like to maybe not belong to try and engage with a group that does. So for instance, our students who have a racial or ethnic background that is less represented at the school are more likely to go support another group that is also less represented because it it's just a easier transition for them. So what would you recommend either for students or, you know, people outside of the education world who want to be more involved and learn more about cultures other than their own? One of the things I always tell people is that there's a lot of things that are Googleable, And so you can always start with reading a book with, you know, Honestly, I've gotten a lot of education from Black Twitter and some Instagram accounts and things that are a little bit safer on the outskirts, but are very educational if you are afraid of maybe first engaging. But then, and the reason in part that I say that is because we do want to be careful about putting the burden on, you know, your quote, one Black friend to do the educating because you don't know how many other people are putting that burden on them. But if you have really good relationships with people who have particular identities and you want to know more, then you can ask and say, hey, this is pretty awkward, but I really do want to understand, is there a way that we can do this that does not put a burden on you? Because I'm aware that it might and let them honestly answer you or, hey, do you have a book that you would want me to read or a show you'd want me to watch that would help me understand more. And that's always an entry point that I would suggest. Yeah. Now taking a little bit of a turn before we hit the record button, we were talking about your last name and pronunciation. So what was it like for you to take your husband's last name and to now 
be living with a name that might be difficult for people to pronounce? That's a loaded question for a lot of different reasons. So I will I will unpack that as well as I can because I think there's quite a bit to to get at in there. I can give you a lot about society and about culture in that one answer. So first, I did not legally take my husband's last name. We'll start there. My driver's license and such is still West. Um, In most Asian cultures, the wife doesn't take the last name. That wasn't necessarily my reasoning. My reasoning at the time was that I already had a job and I in a, a career that was just getting started that had a lot of networking involved. And so I wasn't going to take the name immediately until I kind of settled into where I was headed because I was a little bit concerned about changing the name and then having trouble with that network. Then on the flip side, talking to him about that and finding out like it wasn't a big deal to him because that wasn't really something that he was expecting or was, you know, commonplace. It put me in a little bit of a pickle because then I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I started working uh, maybe eight or nine months after we got married at a church for a little while. And maybe five or six days in, I came in and I couldn't log in. I couldn't figure it out. And I went to the tech person and they had changed it for me. So they decided that I needed to be with my married last name. And that was somewhat of the beginning of me unintentionally using the name. So it was really complicated for me because I wasn't really sure what to do because I mean, I am in Texas and culturally there were a lot of people who just very much could not understand not taking the name and I'm pretty young and again, it's a very conservative environment. Then there was the question of how am I going to pronounce the name? And my husband wasn't necessarily helping on that front and it's not his fault at all, but in, in English, he wouldn't pronounce it the same twice because in Khmer, the Cambodian language, the pronunciation is just completely different than what I'm using now and really difficult for me to say. I still cannot say it correctly. And so if he were to be speaking in Khmer, he would just say it as you would say in Khmer. And then when he would switch to English, he would just kind of flip around with what, how he said it. So before we got married, my mom sat us down and said, would you please pick one that we can be consistent with and tell us how, how do you want us to pronounce it, which is how we came up with what we did. And he just almost in a tongue in cheek fashion came up with the most text inversion he could so that people would you know stick with it. So I really just felt this kind of disconnect between what to do with the name. Um, and then when I went to seminary, um, and, and left kind of where I grew up and where all of our family was, it was somewhat of an, a reinvention. And when we got there and we got to like orientation and the name tags were there cause he came to, it was like kind of a family thing. And it was, um, his name was 
first name and then last name West. So they, they actually put my maiden name on his name. And it was just like, you know what, this is just ridiculous. And so when I got there, a lot of the women were double barreling their names. And I really liked that. And so I just started started doing that. And legally, when you're married, you, you know, you have rights to your, your husband's name. And um, so, you know, documentation wise, I do what I need to do. But I began to double barrel it. And then once I had kids, I felt like it was really important for me to be able to you know, connect with them and be known like by the same name, the same family. So that's a kind of a long winded answer, but there's a lot of, a lot of unpacking to do in terms of, of how two different cultures deal with names and the importance they put on them. And then a lot of um, gendering as well. Right. And I love the fact that you went to an event and they put your maiden name on your husband's name. Yeah, it was a good day. It felt like I was starting some something that was going to be different for me. And, and it really was a, a def, definitely a different experience. So did you correct those name tags at all? We just laughed. And um, I don't remember if he did or not. Knowing him, he probably didn't. Because, I don't know, I just doubt he did. That's great. So what else would you like to share with the listeners today? Well, you did mention a chronic illness. So I I will say something about that since we talked about it slightly. One of the things that is really important in the DEI space, and we've since we've been talking so much about race and ethnicity in terms of social identity is that we also have hidden social identities. And one of them is religion. If your religion doesn't require any kind of outside signifier and another um, can be um, ability. I happen to actually wear a, a leg brace, so it makes it a little bit less hidden these days, but a lot of times people assume it's a, a temporary injury. So that also is an kind of goes along with that. But um, for me, I have what's called dopamine responsive dystonia, the rare form of a rare neurological disorder. And so it's not something that I was born with or that I've dealt with for a long time, although there's probably signs of it throughout my teenage years, but it's really something that came on strongly after the birth of my second son. And so what essentially it is, is it's akin to Parkinson's in that it um, interferes with the dopamine response. The best that I could describe it is that you still produce dopamine, but the receptors down the line don't take to it. And so a lot of the symptoms are similar to Parkinson's. and so it's a motor disorder where your muscles will spasm involuntarily. Um, they can be either really spastic or um, contort quite significantly, just depending on the severity and what the type of dystonia that you have. So for me, it has looked more like... Um, like a Parkinsonisms, which is what is referred to when your muscles, it's like you're moving in 
slow motion or like in cement it's a, a real slowness um it affects my speech sometimes a little bit depending on time of day and where i am in my meds and then it also um muscle rigidity so um will be extreme like tightness to where um it's just can be very painful so muscles get very tight and that will move things out of line and so you're constantly kind of out of whack in terms of where your your hips may be pulled one up a little bit or your spine like when i first got it they were looking at scoliosis um because of where my how my back was behaving and then i did x-rays like another year and i moved multiple multiple degrees and they realized oh your spine has moved because the muscles have moved so much that we could probably x-ray you every few weeks and see that much like movement in your spine because of how much the muscles are moving so um, it's one of those things you'd have to do some reading on and then realize there's not a lot of literature on but i think um it is a a really good example of the kind of invisible illness that is difficult in that it's not a household name. And so you can't just go in and say, oh, this is what I have. And people say, oh, and then know what it is you're going through and then how to either help or, or you know, wear a pink ribbon or whatever it might be. And so I think it's one of the things that um, has, has been challenging about it, but I think it's also um, a really good example of why it's important that we remember that our identities aren't all visible all the time. Yeah. And it sounds like you may have struggled to get the initial diagnosis. It took more than two years, at least, depending on where I count from. Um, And then even longer to find a doctor that could treat yeah, so I don't, I'm not in my own city and I mean, I'm part of like support groups through the Dystonia Foundation now and people have to travel much farther than I do um, just because it is a, a rare disorder, so. And what are, because like you mentioned, since it's not a household name, people don't kind of have this immediate response to, oh, I know somebody or I kind of know generically what they're talking about. What is the long-term implications for you? That's a great question. That's still a little bit um, on the table. Some of it is just knowing the question of how long medication will work and be effective The flip side of that is the longer we go, the more likely that there'll be new things invented. And that's, you know, the hope. There's not a lot of funding behind the research because it's not a sexy household name. And so there are people who are always trying to get funding and get before Congress. And so it's usually in a bill that comes out every year and it's one of a laundry list of a whole lot of other ones. So it's sharing funding with a bunch of other things. 
Um, there's a rare disease day. I think it's like March or February 28th, something like that. And there's a day of awareness. But, you know, for me, it's more um, just mobility. Like, I'm very grateful that I have been able to be in physical therapy weekly. And so that has been an incredible gift to be able to maintain, I think, and even increase some of that mobility that other people I know do not have. So just really being able to continue in treatment. But as far as like aging, it just, it's kind of hard to say what that looks like. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to share about that. I'm going to start to wrap things up. At the end of every episode, I do ask a random question of all of my guests, so something a little bit different. So my question for you, and I'm hoping the answer is yes and you have a story, is do you collect anything? Oh, goodness. Um... Currently, I don't know that I collect anything. If I do, it's clear. Well, I mean, I keep my playbills when I go to a show, so I can say that. Um, I do. Okay, I'll, I will jump on this so I don't leave you with dead air. I used to collect um, pins, like the pins, P-I-N, um, like if you've ever watched Little League World Series, the pins that they trade when I, I used to play softball and we had pins. And so I had those, but I also would, whenever we went on a trip, I would always get a pin. And so I had like pin collections. And now when I travel, I always get a magnet, whatever city I'm in. So that's about as exciting as it gets. Um, it's not great. Sorry. All right, that brings this episode to a close. There will be lots of great links in the description. So a link for the Dystonia Foundation, along with some resources. As Cheryl mentioned, you know, things are Googleable, So getting some lists for good resources there, along with Cheryl's LLC website and her speaker page, she will be doing a TEDx in June. So she's got that exciting bit coming up. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is on in the description as well. It brings you to all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, a link to do that is directly in the description as well, along with my email address if you would like to connect with me or be a guest on the show. So thank you so much, Cheryl, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Thanks for being such a gracious host.